Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. In the 90s, artists like Eminem and the White Stripes reshaped Detroit's music scene. Now the Motor City's mood is changing once again, with minimalist punk's proto-martyr leading the charge. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Detroit Quartet proto-martyr joins us in the studio. Plus, we find out how the Turtles are shaking up copyright law and review the debut album from Australian imports, The Preachers. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, every year in March, we go down to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest. And as much as we come back enthused with new musical discoveries, it's rare that the golden child of March is still delivering the goods in October, November, December. I saw a band called The Preachers. We're going to review their debut album later. You saw a proto-martyr down there, and you're still super excited about them. Yeah, terrific band. They're going to be guests on our show, but first we've got some music news. Imagine me and you. I think about you day and night It's only right to think about the girl you love And hold her tight So happy together That, of course, is the Turtles' 1967 classic, Happy Together. And 47 years later, vocalists Flo and Eddie, or Howard Kalen and Mark Volman, are still making news, but more for their legal battles than their music. Last year, they sued satellite radio provider Sirius XM for $100 million in damages in California, New York, and Florida, saying that by playing its songs without permission, the broadcaster had infringed on the group's rights under state laws. The first ruling came down in September in California in favor of the Turtles. Then, earlier this month, a district court judge in New York ruled against Sirius XM and rejected its motion for summary judgment. This is being portrayed as a major victory for artists and record companies in the copyright debate. But more significantly, it may have a wider impact if the cases lead to changes in copyright law. Finally, specifically, the obscure provision on recordings made before 1972, when federal copyright protection went into effect. For songs by the Turtles and other oldies acts, neither Sirius XM nor services like Pandora pay labels or artists. They do pay royalties for songwriting. So it begs the question of who should get financial credit for a song, the songwriter, the performer, or both. To help us make sense of this whole thing, we were joined by Mark Hogan, lead news writer for the website Wondering Sound after the California ruling. Here he comments on the potentially huge ramifications for copyright law. Well, I guess the classic example here to start with is Aretha Franklin's Respect. She performed it, she recorded it, Otis Redding wrote it, and it was before 1972, which is a crucial line in, in copyright law. When that song is played on digital radio, the royalties for the songwriting would go to Otis Redding's estate, but Aretha Franklin doesn't get any royalties for that recording. Basically, there's this big copyright case involving the group The Turtles and Sirius XM Radio, and the judge found that SiriusXM does have to pay 
these so-called performance royalties for the people who own the recording. So uh, under this ruling, uh, at least in California, where the case was decided, Aretha Franklin now would be getting these performance royalties for her recording of Respect. It's only for digital music, but after 1972, the performers do get performance royalties for digital radio, and before 1972, they don't. It's this big cutoff line. And the weird thing is that traditional radio, broadcast radio, doesn't pay performance royalties at all. They only pay songwriting royalties. So, Mark, a couple of things strike me about this. One, 1972, this seems to be a demarcation line, apparently arbitrary. What is it about 1972 that's separating whether or not a performer is going to get royalties for a digital broadcast? Federal copyright law just sets 1972 as the date that those royalties, again, prior to 1972, federal copyright law doesn't apply to sound recordings. It's just state law. I guess basically it's just that when they came up with the law to cover sound recordings, they just kind of arbitrarily set that as, okay, we have to have some line, here it is. Now, this ruling applies to digital broadcasters, but it apparently still does not apply to terrestrial, so-called traditional radio stations. Is this going to change at all? The ruling directly applies to Sirius XM radio, and it has implications for Pandora and other online radio services. When it comes to traditional terrestrial radio, it's going to be interesting to see. He doesn't say that the ruling applies only to digital radio, so there's a chance, and we'll have to see what happens. I'm sure the case will be appealed, but there's a chance that you know, if you're a California oldie station, you might be wanting to uh, come up with a different format because all of a sudden you might have to pay these performance royalties on pre-1972 recordings. So I'm a music fan sitting at home. I listen to digital. I listen to terrestrial radio. Why should I care? I guess basically if you're a music fan, it's just a matter of the artist getting compensated. If Aretha Franklin is driving you to Pandora to listen to her music, just for example, you know, maybe you want her to actually get some benefit from that and not just this company. If you're listening at home, you know, there's a lot of these legacy artists that aren't selling albums anymore, and this would be a way for them to be compensated for the fact that you're listening to their music. So what's the next step here? What do we look forward to? This is obviously a major ruling, but how, uh, how big of a reality is this in, in terms of truly affecting how these uh, digital companies operate? It's going to take some time to see, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure that SiriusXM is going to appeal. They also face some other lawsuits. So it's not going to necessarily take effect just yet, but it's definitely, you know, lawyers are calling it a decision with you know, huge implications for the music industry. There could be legislation on the way. There's certainly going to be you know, behind-the-scenes lobbying by all the sides involved to try to get the law straight and have it be what they want. So we'll see. Mark, how, how about one big picture question? The word that you used before was arbitrary. Why are artists before 1972 treated one way, artists after? You know, there are so many arbitrary lines in our copyright laws today. Do you see any sense at any time soon coming to the world of copyright, acknowledging that the entire paradigm has shifted with the digital era? I don't see any immediate, you know, sweeping overhaul just because people can't necessarily agree on the big picture. But I do think, you know, yeah, look, we're living in a post-girl talk time. Mashups and remixes and, and people reusing old content is, is here to stay. And what remains to be seen is who's going to make money off of it. Well, yeah. I've talked to a few congressmen, and apparently copyright reform is in committee in the federal legislature. But they also point out that the copyright law under which we are now operating that dates back to the 70s took 15 years 
to finally <laughs> be forged. If we wait 15 years, Mark, for the next copyright law, there'll be a completely new landscape in terms of how digital operates, don't you think? There's definitely urgency to getting copyright reform done soon. As everybody knows these days, it's just so divided in Congress that almost nothing can get done. There was another law in the 90s, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, that kind of updated copyright law a little bit to take into account these then new digital services. But yeah, I mean, they definitely need to sit down and hammer something out pretty soon here because according to SoundExchange, which collects these royalties, there is 67 million in lost royalties last year of performance royalties that you know would have gone to these pre-1972 artists but didn't because of the way the law is now. So I think defining this from the standpoint of the casual music fan, who would they want to see getting paid? Because I think there's a feeling that everybody's getting paid but the person most responsible for the piece of music. That's a great point. And I think that, you know, there, I mean, there are some people who care about who wrote the song they're hearing, but from, you know, just the casual fan's perspective, and my perspective sometimes too, when you're hearing a record, I mean, that's what you're enjoying. You know, there is a songwriter behind that, but it's really the performance and the passion that goes into that performance and just the feeling you get when you hear that record is what you're paying for if you're buying a record. One point I didn't make earlier about that Aretha Franklin thing is, again, Aretha Franklin didn't write Respect, but she made it her own and changed the lyrics. And that recording is classic. And she doesn't get performance royalties for that. But she just recently re-recorded an Adele song. And because it is post-1972, if you play that on Pandora or Sirius XM, Aretha Franklin will get royalties for that. So it's a pretty strange, I mean, again, arbitrary line. And the irony of it all is is that none of that is being compensated for the way terrestrial radio rights are currently structured or digital rights pre-1972. Right. If you listen to a record from before 1972, the songwriter is getting compensated, but the person who owns the recording, the people who actually sang it, are not. We've been talking to Mark Hogan of Wondering Sound about the serious XM Turtles lawsuit and federal copyright protection for songs before 1972. Mark, thanks for joining us on Sound Opinions. Sure thing. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Scum Rise by our guest this week, Proto Martyr. The post-punk quartet out of Detroit first made a name for itself back in 2012 with a style rock that takes influence from the city's notables like Jack White and the Stooges, but brings it somewhere new. You have that expressiveness and the urgency, but pulled and stripped way back. Proto Martyr released its second album under a color of official right and quickly made a splash at this year's South by Southwest Music Conference. One of the things I really loved about the band was the vocal style of lead singer Joe Casey. It's almost like he's the guy at the end of the bar talking as much as singing, and he's glaring over the shoulder of his guitarist Greg Ahey at some guy in the corner that he really doesn't like. And when he pops, it's like this friendly barfly suddenly turning on you. Jim, you weren't able to join us, but I was excited to again see this in action when Joe, Greg, drummer Alex Leonard, and Scott Davidson visited the studio earlier this year. We talked about the band's new, tightly constructed album, their sonic philosophy of less is more, and the band's connection to literary icon Elmore Leonard. 
So we've got Greg and Joe at the mic here. Joe, you were not in a rock band when That's you right. joined yeah. Proto Martyr. How did that happen? You and Greg met, I guess, right? Yeah, we worked at the same job, and uh, we were just talking about music, and uh, we realized that we went to the same high school, but 10 years apart. <laughs> and I kind of drunkenly started showing up at their practice with their band and uh, jumping on the mic, and it kind of went from there. Greg, what made you think hey, it'd be a good idea to have this guy who's never played in a rock band be our lead vocalist. To be honest, I probably didn't think it was a good idea, but it was just <laughs> something to do. It really just started as like kind of almost a joke. We would just jam a lot, and Joe would come, and it'd be kind of funny. But once we got a practice space, then it became serious because Joe was paying for half of it. Mm-hmm. Alex and I were paying for the other half. So it was like, all right, now he's paying the majority of rent. We have to... Money talks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Joe basically bought his way into he the did. band, is what yeah, you're that's, saying. Yeah, that's the way to do <laughs> Please, it. Please, let me in your band. Here's some money. <laughs> Joe, from your end of it, you know, I take it never being on stage before or mm-hmm. r- very rarely to being the guy up in front having to sing. And you've been very upfront about the fact that you're not a conventional singer. Right. What made you think, hey, I can do this? Well... In Detroit, your first years of shows are going to be to nobody. So you're nervous, but you're only singing to your friends, really. So you feel you can do that. And then now, when we're playing in front of festival crowds, it's like, well, I guess I have to do this now. So mm-hmm. I just kind of <laughs> steal myself. Greg, what did you think of, of Joe when you know he started singing, opening his mouth to, to sing? What you were saying, hey, this may be not working out, or what was the what was your reaction? Question. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought that it was strange, but before he joined, Alex and I kind of both sang, and we don't have good voices, and we don't have really good stage presence, and so it didn't really feel that far removed. It wasn't until we started to get any press that I saw how other people viewed him, because to us it was just our friend just like, Mm-hmm. You know, kind of mumbling, but I don't really think I thought too much about it. I didn't really analyze it too much. Everything seemed to progress really naturally, so. We're going to catch up with the story here in a minute, but uh, I'd like to have you guys play a song first. We're here with Proto Martyr. Guys, what are you going to play first for us? Uh, first one is Come and See off of uh, the new album. <laughs> The open ending 
Come and see from Proto Martyr live on Sound Opinions. After the break, more of Greg's conversation with the band. And later, we review the new album from the up tempo quintet, The Preachers. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And you've been listening to Proto Martyr perform live in our studio. The Detroit band chatted with Greg while on tour promoting their latest album, Under Color of Official Right. Here, guitarist Greg Ahey talks about his hometown rock scene, one that was largely defined by the garage punk of the White Stripes a decade ago. Now it's different. That garage rock thing has kind of died down a bit, which to me is a good thing. I mean, I love the White Stripes and I love a lot of the bands that came out of there, but, you know, it's like 15 years past that now, so it got really tired. Right now, I don't know if there's a unified sound coming out of Detroit, but I know in our group of friends and in our like small scene, there's, there's a lot of great things happening. A lot of it coming from this label that put out our first record, Urinal Cake Records, They've got a lot of just weirder punk bands. But I'm not sure if there's like a clear unified sound. I, I know that like people tell me certain things I hear, and usually it's people from out of town that can pick up on things like that. It's really frustrated sounding. There's like a nervous energy to a lot of the bands, and that might have something to do with the city. But yeah, I'm really excited about music that's happening there, and I feel like more and more people seem to be catching on to it. Culturally, Detroit has offered the world so much, and I wanted to bring Alex, Alex Leonard, the drummer, in. Alex, you're distantly related to Elmore Leonard. <laughs> he's my grandfather. That's so. not so distant. Yeah, That's he's... pretty direct. Yeah, we were, we were good friends. Really? What was that relationship like? Oh, he was a great guy. Just really nice, funny, normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played him Proto-Martyr one time. <laughs> I brought over our first album. Oh, really? And um, he listened kind of, you know, squinted his eyes, and he said how many guys are in this band? And I said, four. And he said, you sure make a lot of noise for four guys. Did he ever give you any career advice? You know, what's this rock band thing? Um, he clearly steered his own path in the literary world. What did he impart to you in terms of devoting at least part of your life to music and art? He was always just, if you want to do something, just do it and go for it. So he was, he was okay with it. He was fine oh, with it. Oh, yeah, completely. You know. He was always interested in music, and he was frustrated that he couldn't play. Uh-huh. He said he had like a subscription to Backbeat magazine in the 50s, which is like a, like a jazz drumming magazine, I think. What, what, what was his favorite band? He liked, like, old stuff. He liked, like, Count Basie, stuff like that. Jazz and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. He was not a rock and roller. Uh, not really. He didn't, he didn't really like that stuff that much. Did the rest of you guys meet him? Any, any of you guys uh, get a chance to, to spend yeah, any time I, with Elmore Leonard? I met him a few times. Greg, you did? Yeah. I think the first time, it was funny that you mentioned, like, rock bands, because I remember the first time I met him, Alex and I were going to go see this show at uh, this club, St. Andrews, in Detroit, and he was like, oh, you're going to St. Andrews. And he told us about just hanging out with Iggy Pop there. And uh, Elmore Leonard did? Yeah. And he said, what do you say? Like, Iggy <laughs> oh, used yeah. to write his phone number and then stage dive to give to girls in the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, why are you stage dive? And Iggy was like, no, I had my phone number and I gave it to that girl. <laughs> and he did tell us, like, to change our name to the Steves. He wanted us to change our yeah, name. Yeah, because St. Stephen's the proto-martyr. And right. he's like, yeah, the Steves. That sounds better. <laughs> He's much more successful than we'll probably ever be, so we should take his advice. You know? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he did it very unconventionally, kind of clearing his own path, creating his own style, which I guess is maybe the main lesson you can get from a guy like that, right? Definitely. Um, that's all you can ask for. We're here with Proto Martyr on Sound Opinions. Another song, guys? What are you going to play? Uh, sure. This one's called uh, Want Remover. <laughs> <laughs> 
remover from proto-martyr on sound opinions. We talked a little bit about the Stooges and Iggy diving into the audience to give girls his phone numbers. <laughs> now we know the, the trick behind the stage diving. Um, what, so this is obviously a band that had, had some impact on the way you sound, it, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, Detroit and that legacy of what came out of that scene uh, right. well before your time yeah. meant something to you. Well, with the Stooges, it's definitely like um, any credible bar in Detroit has Funhouse on the jukebox. <laughs> That's a good bar. Yeah. That's definitely like with the Stooges, I like that they were not like a lot of bands in Detroit that were garage rock would kind of copy crappier bands. And so like the Stooges were like definitely weirder and, you know, more out there. And, and that appealed to you guys, the fact that they had, again, their their own path. Yeah. In, I mean, in terms just of- the fact that they started with uh, Iggy tap dancing and them banging on barrels and things, and then they became this band. You know, they kind of took very raw elements and made something out of it, so, yeah. Greg, I, I understand that you guys have very different tastes in music, or at least you and Joe do, and I think it speaks of the other guys as well. How did you find a common ground? There's a lot of things that we love that Joe hates. And, you know, and I think it's he's nine years older than... Alex and I and 10 years old and Scott. So I think that might have something to do with it. But it was pretty early on when we found Common Ground. I think that came from, you know, we kind of became friends because he was really good friends with Tyvek. And I was a big fan and we kind of bonded over that. And uh, a lot of local Detroit bands that were kind of in a similar vein. And from there, it was like, yeah, certain rock music that just both kind of gravitated to. I think we both really love like Wire mm-hmm. and uh, certain bands like that. And so... We find common ground, and we can build on that, but then 
all of us will take whatever we each are influenced by and kind of throw that into the pot as well. Mm-hmm. Joe, name a band that they like that you can't stand. They they have a, a appreciation for Drake that I don't understand. Uh, <laughs> um, like it's way they're way into him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. You know. And I don't hear any Drake influences in the music. Not yet. No, Let's yeah. give it time. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for it to come. Working yeah. on it? Yeah. No, yeah, we, I think we like all sorts of um, like R&B and some pop music. The Drake thing is kind of, it's a little bit of a joke, too. We kind of mess with Joe a little bit with that, but we do like him. Alex, Scott, and I all really, we listen to a lot of R&B and, and hip-hop, and Joe doesn't as much. I don't know if you really hate it, but you don't really listen to it as yeah, much. Yeah, I'm too old. Yeah. <laughs> It's a celebration, clap, clap, bravo, lobster and shrimp and a glass of Moscato for the girl who's a student and a friend who's a model, finish the whole bottle and we gonna do it big like this. The sound is very minimalist, I would say. There, everything, there's not a lot of wasted notes, there's not a lot of, you know, showy uh, fills or drum solos or guitar solos or, you know, big bass statements and stuff like that. Was that just sort of a, hey, this is, came out or was it kind of a more conscious decision to edit things out and and make it what it is this sort of you know very minimalist kind of sound it was a conscious decision in the fact that like let's do things that we can actually be good at let's not try to stretch at least early on like not try to stretch too far if the music is really complicated and i'm doing a monotone over it it's going to sound a little bit weird or if like i'm trying to really hit some notes and they're doing you know so it was more like a i guess just an easy way to do it yeah it started off just kind of what works and building from that we like just doing, just try to take simple elements and push them really far. You know, I always say just do the most with the least. That's kind of a mantra for like the band, at least how I view it. But yeah, I don't know how much of it is conscious. I know that I like to edit stuff down heavily. I like to, I, I love cutting stuff. I'm just like, let's get rid of that, even full songs so that what's left feels essential. So that when we make a record, I want to love every single moment of every single song. And if I don't, I feel like, well, I failed in some way. It's uh, it's really actually frustrating <laughs> recording a record. But yeah, and I'm trying to convince him he should like hate one or two songs in the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's got to love it at all, I guess. I don't know. Well, well, the wire reference makes sense because a lot of their songs were a minute or two long. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, it's almost like before you even know it's a song, it's it's gone and they're on to the next thing. Right. Um, and you guys have that same sort of very sculpted approach to your music. Let's hear another song. We've got Proto Martyr here, Joe Casey, Greg Ahe, Alex Leonard, Scott Davidson. What are we going to hear next, guys? Uh, this one's a new one called Coward Starve, and I'm not really happy with the lyrics yet, so I might <laughs> mumble a lot. But... <laughs> okay. It's a work in progress. A debut.
oh so precious exist And if you think about them all a good time You're gonna find that your head's been kicking You're gonna do it till the end of time Wild eyes something I'm gonna take you to the breakers Howard Starve, that's a new song from Proto Martyr on Sound Opinions. Did I get this right, Joe, that you would do like walk ons? It wasn't kind of like you were in the band, but you would just sort of walk on and do right. vocals occasionally. Like you're, the guy at the end of the bar is now singing. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. The band. It was, it was kinda, I kind of wish we could do that occasionally again because it was a lot of fun. Like they, they would play in their band and then like they'd be like tuning up or something, and then I'd kind of wander from the bar where I was playing touchscreen. And kind of grab the mic, and then they go immediately into a song, and I'd sing over it, mm-hmm. and then maybe I'd do one more, and then I go, and then wander off. And so, one time I actually just left the bar after I didn't even stick around for the. And they're like, "Well, who was that guy?" And they said, "I don't know. I've never seen that guy." So, Greg, when you started into your twenties playing in rock bands. What was your goal in terms of getting through? Was it just a hobby kind of thing to do? Well, or I actually did you started like- pretty young. I think I started my first band when I was in like seventh grade. Yeah. And we would play shows. We would we just played like kind of pop punk and we would just cold call venues, say, Hey, we want to play and sometimes they'd let us and we wouldn't even tell any of our friends and it'd be I mean, we played like three people. I mean it's always the thing I've loved doing most. So I think at that age I was like, Oh, I wanna do this forever and make money doing it but as I got older I stopped wanting to make money because that didn't seem realistic. So mm-hmm. it was kind of, um, it's always been a hobby, but a hobby that I cared more about than any work I was doing. What influenced the way you play the guitar? Because uh, as I said, taking things out seems to be more essential than showing off your virtuosity, as well, it were. I, yeah, I think I don't have very much virtuosity. So I just kind of work with what I have. You know, I don't have great dexterity. I kind of just started by keeping things really simple and then adding in more noise to them. But especially on the new record, I tried to just back off a lot. I thought the first record we did, um, No Passion, All Technique, was more about the treble. It was really like guitar heavy and really just high end. And uh, there wasn't much low end. There wasn't much like groove to it. Oh, 
with the new one, I thought like we wanted it to be really low end heavy, have like a strong drum presence, strong bass presence. So because of that, I liked being able to back off a little bit and let them kind of lock into something. And then usually it just came from maybe messing around in practice and like, all right, I'm going to stop playing here and see how this sounds. So Known Passion, All Technique came out in 2012. That was your first record. And a bunch of songs recorded all in one day. Yep. You guys were ready to go. You guys wrote a lot of songs in a short amount of time and, and got them all down in the studio. And in fact, Proto Martyr gets the prize as the quickest band to set up in the Sound Opinions history. Uh, oh, wow. I, I mean, thought... not even, it wasn't, it's not even a close second, maybe off. Does that sort of define the aesthetic? Like, hey, let's do it, let's do it quickly. If we have to labor over this, it's not worth doing. Right now, I think what it is is if we do want we feel like if we're going to ask for time to do something or to get something right, there must be a reason behind it. Like, if we can set up fast, we're going to set up fast. Like, that's kind of our credo, I guess. Showing up on time, we try to. Mm-hmm. But doing the second record for three days as opposed to one, what did that time allow you to do that you couldn't do on the first record, if anything? We definitely recorded things separately a lot more, and um, I, I had to do several takes of singing, which I never had to do before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was weird. <laughs> it just gave us time to think more about the songs. Come and see it specifically changed completely. Yeah, it was like studio. a completely different song. Yeah. So we were able to kind of realize, like, oh, this song would be better if we did this, whereas with the first record we recorded it and released it and then said, oh, that song would have been better if, you know. I think Three Days helped us eliminate some regrets we might have had after releasing it so quickly. The idea then is the next one, which we'll hopefully get to next year, is going to be Seven Days. And then I'm, I think I'm a little bit worried that it's going to be like, you know, we're going to add like strings in every song and like choir, yeah. have a, bring a <laughs> choir in. And Now I think, I, I like a little bit of time to think about things too. I like that mix of moments that are really well th- thought out and then kind of spontaneity of just doing things in the studio and just like doing it and that's it. I, I think we all like strict time restraints too. You, you mentioned that Come and See was a very different song. I, I'm curious how that started out. Where, what kind of a song was it at first? I think most of what I was doing in the song was the same, but it was all built around this bass line that at the time we thought sounded good, but at the time we also practiced in this like warehouse space that had no insulation and everything just reverberated. So this like really big bass sound we couldn't tell was just not working at all with the guitar and with the vocals. And Alex was doing a really, really fast drum beat over it. And we got in to record it, and I think we even recorded the album pretty much in the order that it is on the track list. So it was like, you know, 10 songs in or whatever it is. And uh, I remember just thinking right before we did it, like, um, there's no natural reverb in this room. This is going to sound totally different. And we played it once through. We're like, oh, that sounded terrible. And uh, Bill Skibby, who produced the record, was like, all right, well, we're not doing that. And we went in and slowed it down and just kind of changed the bass. All of a sudden, we're like, okay, this works. So that process was kind of exciting, too. So that's why I think we want to try that again. But that doesn't sound like it was labored over either. Either It was a spontaneous kind well, of decision. Well, we had like an hour or two hours, and he's like, all right, you have this time, make something, or it's getting cut. So it was. It, there was definitely some pressure there, but... 
once it hit, we felt good about it. Yeah, it's like a signature song on that record now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was a good decision. We're here with Proto Martyr, Joe, Greg, Alex, Scott. You got to play one more song for us, guys? Uh, sure, one more. Um, <clears throat> this one is I'll Take That Applause. I'll take that applause from Proto-Martyr on Sound Opinions. Just want to comment on that song. That's a eerie song that ends the record under color of official right. And on the record, you hear the the tape, right, right Joe, of your, uh, I believe it's your, is it your grandmother? Yep. I got the little bed in the back of the house. I got the little bed in the back of the house. And it sort of brings the record full circle in, in a way from a mood standpoint. Right. What was it about that tape of your grandmother's voice that you felt belonged on that song? My grandmother was in her 90s. She lived with us in our house uh, before she passed. And my dad used to tape her just talking, hoping to get like stories out of her. And her mind was kind of gone from that point, but she'd just like, make up songs and talk. And at the time, I remember thinking I was a little bit annoyed with my dad. But since my dad has passed, I found these tapes, and I just find them really fascinating. And uh, I kind of liked the way that she was singing. Um, the band thought it was a little creepy. And I, I like how some people are like, it sounds like a, a witch's voice. But, yeah, it's my, my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Better that than what was on the other side, which is I, I feel bad now, but I taped over a bunch of these tapes with me when I was, like, 10, making up songs on a keyboard that are terrible. So that will probably be on the next al- album, will be those clips. <laughs> Can't wait for that. That's yeah. uh, something to look forward to. We have been in the studio with proto-martyr Joe Casey, Greg Ahe, Alex Leonard, Scott Davidson. Thanks a lot, guys, for coming in. Thank Thanks you so Greg. much. To watch videos of proto-martyr performing, visit soundopinions.org and let us know what you think of Detroit's rock scene. 
What other artists are shaping the Motor City? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I take a trip down under for a review of The Preachers. Sound Opinions, that is a song called Is This How You Feel by the Australian band The Preachers from their debut album Blue Planet Eyes, newly out on the Harvest Records label, which has been doing a lot of good work lately, Greg. I uh, said earlier in the show I first saw this band at South by Southwest last March. I was impressed. They're very young, but they are very together. They only came together in 2010 when the guitarist Jack Moffat and bassist Tom Champion, fresh out of high school, enrolled at the Australian Institute of Music. There they met a talented singer named Izzy Manfredi. The band was completed as a quintet. They got a lot of attention, self-releasing some early music, got signed to Mercury Records in Australia and eventually to Harvest Records. Now comes this full-length album. They've already played major festivals like Bonnaroo, Coachella, Glastonbury. It's a case of a band, yet again, going from nowhere to the center of the universe very, very quickly. Do they justify that with this new album? It was produced by Jim Eno of Spoon, guests on Sound Opinions. Let's play a song from it, and we'll come back and give our review of Blue Planet Eyes. This is Cruel by the Preachers on Sound Opinions. What you doing is a big mistake, baby.
That is Cruel from the new Preachers album, Blue Planet Eyes, the debut by this Australian band. A great choice to have Jimino of Spoon produce this record. I hear his touches. I hear some of Spoon in the way this band approaches its music. Those really taut melodies, syncopated grooves, no fat, no frills. You know, let's get to the heart of the song. And it emphasizes the songwriting strength of this band. I think it's a really impressive debut because of the songwriting. I, I see three main features in this record, Jim. That title track is sort of a red herring, but it's really great. It kicks mm. off the album, and it sort of has this British shoegazer kind of feel. They could have done a whole album just like that, yeah. and I would have been really happy with that sound. It's almost it's really soul cool. music. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Then the pop rock tracks kick in in the vein of Is This How You Feel? They do this very well. Blondie-esque, I would say, mm-hmm. almost, in the way Manfredi approaches her vocals. There's that sassiness, that new, new wave type of approach to the vocals. Have you seen them live? I have seen them live. Because they have that, she has that whole Chrissy Hine yeah. meets Debbie Harry thing happening. There's a little bit of attitude up there, oh, maybe yeah. a lot of attitude sometimes, and it's great. She's really the focal point of the band on stage. But I think the part that really blew me away on this record, which I was not fully aware of was uh, the gift for for melodies in uh, the ballads. The poignance that they bring to songs like Two-Tone Melody Mm -hmm. and that business Yeah, which finishes off the record. When I impressive array of chops here and also as a vocalist very impressive debut from this record it's a buy it all the way for me I'm glad to hear you say that. It is a buy it. I've been high on this uh, forever, this this music. I've been (laughs) urging you to join me in reviewing it on the show. I'm surprised you didn't mention also the sort of soulful Motown strain here. There is a little bit of of American groove, you know, old school 60s R&B. You know, people people are falling all over themselves on the net in comparing this band to different bands, right? But uh, And and I hate to to, to narrow it down because they do stand on their own. But I hear a little little bit of that walking on sunshine mm. vibe from Katrina in the waves in the 80s when suddenly the Brits were getting interested in Motown pop. It's just a wonderful record. It's exuberant. It's uplifting. If you're beginning to feel those winter doldrums, I can't recommend it highly enough. Buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, have we got a list for you. We've got our list of the top records of 2014. Greg, as always, we have some thanks. Uh, Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill helped us with the Proto-Martyr session. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Ben living down uh, right now in Lubbock, Texas. I enjoyed the Desert Island jukebox song from this week uh, by Jurassic 5. And it reminded me a lot of the uh, F word by Cannibal Ox. Um, I know you guys covered them on the Bermuda Triangle show last year. 
I'm curious to know whether you, uh, which song you think is a stronger song. Yo, it wasn't even like that. I wanted my cardiovascular to fight back. Cupid had me running circles, blindfolded in the daytime with a flashlight, looking for her. Yo, sit back, relax, and smell the roses. Smell the roses. A black girl by any other name must still be that. But the trick is to see that. Keep up the good work, guys. Hi, this is Kathleen Garrity calling from Mount Prospect, Illinois. I uh, listened to the Robert Plant interview. It was quite good. He seems somewhat subdued, and I miss the fire that he used to represent when he was a younger man, and I wonder, does he feel that that is gone? Or, I mean, is it gone for all of us? I hope not, because I don't think it is for me, so... What's up with that? You need cooling, baby. I'm not fooling. I'm gonna sit here back to school, way down inside. Honey, you need it. I'm gonna give you my love. I'm gonna give you my love. I'm calling from Chicago. Um, just listen to your uh, Robert Plant interview. And if you guys are journalists, it's fine that you didn't ask him about the plagiarism problems. But then when you talk about, babe, I'm going to leave you, you say it's a traditional song when it's all over the news that it was problems with the credits to that. And they, Joan Baez didn't credit it, the writer of it, and Led Zeppelin didn't credit the writer of it. It's in the news. Pay attention. You're journalists. Don't ask them the question. Fine. But don't botch the, the fact that it was written by, actually written by a human being in the 50s. So... Thanks for that. Bye now. Baby, 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 I'm gonna leave you. I said, baby, you know I'm gonna leave. Robert Plant, fantastic. I love every minute of it. Here in Austin, Texas, turned on KUPX. Had those first two or three albums. I was a music critic back in the 60s. I can remember listening to uh, Abe, I'm Gonna Leave You on a transistor phone while I was studying, sitting at my desk in the dorm, second year college. He was the new blues wave when he came in and uh, thrilled, absolutely thrilled. I couldn't be. I'm going to uh, watch the interview on the website. Thank you. I've got to ramble Oh yeah Hey guys, this is Eric from Carmel, New York. Big Ramones fan calling uh, after hearing your Turkey show and talking about the U2 record. It doesn't bother me that the U2 song doesn't sound like the Ramones. I don't think it has to. It's, uh, you know, Joey, uh, reflection of Joey. Joey and Bono were apparently good friends. In fact, the last song Joey was listening to or the last song that was playing when he died was a U2 song. Not to mention that Joey uh, really wanted to be commercial. Joey really wanted to have a hit. Joey was trying his entire life, his entire career to have a hit. Anyway, that's just my take on it. I love your show. So keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. No more messages. 
To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.